This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor of Education Next. Welcome to the Education Exchange. Should reading be taught phonetically? Should students learn how to pronounce the vowels A, E, I, O, U, and sometimes Y? Should they learn how to pronounce consonants like P as they stand by themselves, as in Peterson, or as in Peter Pipe the Pickled Pepper? Or should students learn to read by the whole word method? Students just look at words in context and find out how they are pronounced naturally. It's a lot more fun that way, and students don't have to learn boring things like vowels and consonants out of context. Phonics is one of the education battle words of our time. Progressives prefer the whole word strategy, and the old-fashioned conservative types still want to keep phonics alive. When the conservative government came to power in England a few years back, it provided supporters of phonics an opportunity to promote the idea with local educational authorities or local school districts, as we call them in the United States. Now we have a new study by Martina Veriengo and her colleagues, which has evaluated the return to phonics in England. Martina is a professor in the Department of Economics at the Graduate Institute at, of the Center for International Development in Geneva, Switzerland, and she's here with me in Boston today. She's just arrived in the United States to receive an Eisenhower Fellowship. Martina, welcome to the Education Exchange. Welcome back to Harvard. Congratulations on your fellowship. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, for having me. It's a great pleasure to be back at PAPG. Well, Martina, can you first tell us more about this program that was developed in England to reintroduce phonics into English education? Yes, of course. Um, so it's quite interesting because um, um, whole language was the main approach that was uh, introduced in, in the national in the framework of the national literacy strategy in the in the UK up until 2000, the year 2000. Um, the new government um, um, foster favored the introduction of the uh, phonics um, uh, method, um, but um, in, the, in the first stage uh, um, fostered the introduction of the analytic phonics for learning to read as part of the reform of the national literacy, literacy strategy. Uh, this um, uh, was in, in place until to the year 2006. Um, what is quite interesting is that uh, um, a qualitative study um, um, in a uh, based on the evidence uh, um, in a small area of Scotland claimed strong effects for children taught to read using synthetic phonics. Synthetic phonics. Synthetic now, why phonics. do they call it synthetic phonics? Why don't they just call it phonics? <laughs> That's a very good question. So there are two main approaches uh, that are related to the phonics method. Um, they both focus on teaching reading explicitly and sequentially through the relationship of letter sound correspondence in words. Um, the analytic phonics uh, consists of teaching to recognize the beginning and ending sounds of words without breaking these into uh, down into the smallest constituent sounds. I see. So they don't teach A E I O. <laughs> Synthetic phonics is teaching them all those little 
parts of the word as well as the total sound of the word. Yes, yes, exactly. So analytiphonics is really about the sounds, the ending and the beginning sounding of words, whereas the synthetic phonics um, uh, consists of teaching how to read in a more systematic way um, by focusing on the pronunciation of the sounds associated with letters in isolation. And there is no agreement among education experts on what is the best method to teach students well, I know. How That's to been read. a big battle in the United <laughs> States over, uh, and it's been a partisan battle, too. Now, was it a partisan battle in, in Britain? Did it ever get into politics, per se? Absolutely, absolutely, and it still is, even today. Um, what we found very interesting and we were surprised um, about was the fact that the um, British government decided to introduce the um, teaching of synthetic phonics in schools just based on the evidence of, it, of uh, the success um, in a small number of schools in an area of Scotland. So, so a little experiment in Scotland, they thought, well, then we can do this on a full-time, big basis throughout but, but there was evidence from the United States. There was this big study that brought the be uh, panel together, and they sort of said, well, you should do both phonics and whole word, and it sort of, but it sort of resurrected phonics, and that was back in the year 2000, right? So it wasn't like it was just the Scottish study. There was all this material coming from the United States as well, wouldn't you say? Yes, absolutely. Uh, um, what the uh, government, British government did, however, was to really make the teaching of synthetic phonics compulsory. That is, it really uh, provided specific guidelines to teachers on how to teach children how to read. Well, this is astounding to Americans, because if the federal government tries to tell <laughs> local school districts what to do, it's total outrage. And we found that with the Common Core. We, and, and that was much vaguer than this. This was just say, you need to teach this curriculum. They didn't tell you how to teach it. Now this is the, federal, the national government in Britain telling local educational authorities how to teach. How did they get by with this? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, what is interesting is that what they did was not only to provide the schools with specific guidelines on how to teach um, children how to, how to read, but also they provided schools with specific resources in order to train teachers. So we are evaluating both. Uh, on the one hand, the change in policy on how students should learn how to read, and also the, this support that was provided to schools in order to introduce these new pedagogy methods. Well, this is certainly a, a very important thing to do. Now, how could you do it, though? I mean, it's so hard to do evaluations of <laughs> curriculum. How, how did you manage to do this? Yes, yes. Um, so uh, we were provided with the support of the Department for Education in England uh, that uh, provided us with the detailed information about the implementation of this uh, policy that was initially introduced in 18 local education authorities as a small pilot um, during the um, preparation of the Rose Report that then informed the introduction of the change in the, in the So law. there were 80 18 school districts, as we would call them, yes, or 80 yes. local educational authorities yes. who were the first ones to get 
this thing started. Yes. Um, and then the um, the um, um, program was introduced uh, um, uh, basically in a first phase. It uh, was extended to uh, 32 additional school districts. Um, and then subsequently, the policy was extended to other school districts in other regions of the country. So how many local education authorities are there in England? So if um, this went to 80, how many was there altogether? There are eight, 850. So you so had 80 that you could 18, come... 18, yes, 18 first. 18? 18. 18. 18. Oh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood yes. you. 18. Yes, So in 18 initially. Now, did, did you compare them with all the rest of the districts, or did you just, um, or did you find a comparison group? Yes, so basically we created two, two treatment groups. The first one is just the pilot, so the 18 school districts. And then we have a second uh, treatment group, that consists of the initial 18 district districts and the ones that were included in the following year. So overall, 50 um, school districts. So one-third of the entire number of school districts. Okay, so a third we, of them after two years get treated in the sense that the government program is rolling out in these places. And then yes. you compare them to all the rest, or? Um, to all the rest, because the policy was introduced uh, uh, nationally. And so eventually, after five years, um, the policy was introduced in all the schools, in the uh, all school districts in the country. Well, can you, can you really compare these 50 school districts with the rest? Are they enough like the others, or um, you, what evidence do you have yes, that they're yes. good? The comparison there. Yes, that's a very good uh, good point. Uh, so uh, we know first of all that the uh, schools in the, in the districts that uh, received for, for first the support were not um, selected on the basis of systematic criteria. Um, of course, we wanted to test. We wanted to test this hypothesis because this uh, um, basically provides us with the opportunity to have an identification strategy to evaluate the impact, causal impact of the policy on outcomes. So we rely on the fact that the policy was gradually um, in, um, implemented in the country and, and the, choice, the, the choice of the schools and school districts was not based on systematic criteria. So we compare basically the characteristics of these uh, treatment groups, the two treatment groups, to our control groups. And we find that they are comparable, that there are no systematic differences. You don't uh, find any difference in the kinds of students attending um, each school? Within it, yeah. a, at the level of the school districts. When we look at the schools, we see that those that received the treatment first were more likely to have a larger share of students coming from a more disadvantaged background um, in terms of eligibility, for example, uh, for free school meals, or in terms of background, uh, being more likely to be non-native English speakers. So these are the students who potentially could benefit the most from this policy. Okay, so let me ask you about this. What your 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 cent What are your sort of major findings from it? What would you say? What are your two, yes. three major findings? Yes. Um, so we find this policy to be effective. First of all, it has a positive impact on improving students' uh, learning outcomes in reading, writing, and mathematics. 
So in subjects beyond reading, including writing and mathematics, you're seeing positive effects on which on, yes. on, on, on five-year-olds or what age group? We find uh, positive effects from um, age five to age seven. Uh-huh. And then we see that when we look just at the results in aggregate, that is for the entire population, we see that by age 11, um, these results, these impacts fade out. So you see initially positive effects, but by the time these students become 11-year-olds, you don't see any difference between the, those in the 50 treatment districts and the rest of the country. Yes. So does this mean then that the experiment is not worth doing? <laughs> we think that actually the experiment is really worth doing because we can think that by the end of primary education, primary schooling, also the other students in the control group have caught up and learned how to read. So we think that there is actually a positive effect because the policy was gradually introduced and so eventually also children in other schools benefited from the policy. So the disadvantaged students do benefit over the long run. By age 11, they're still, you can see that the ones that had this new educational experience were doing better than those taught under the old whole word method. Yes, yes, exactly. When we look at the subset of the student population, we actually find that these positive effects resulting from the introduction of the synthetic phonics policy persist for those students who come from a more disadvantaged background and who are the students who are more likely to struggle to learn how to read in English. So are these also effective with immigrants then or people who uh, are speaking uh, a language other than English? Yes, yes, we find that very strong effects for children um, who are foreign born, who don't speak English as a native language. And we also find very strong effects for uh, those children who come from lower and lower socioeconomic status. Those now, how about, I want to ask the other side of that. How about the students who come from middle-class families who, uh, do they, are they harmed by the policy? Do you see uh, that they're, they don't do as well if they're taught in phonics? Um, those students are those, we, we, um, I forget to say that we, of course, when we do these comparisons and we control, therefore, the um, schools that are in our treatment group to the schools that are in our uh, control group before and after the introduction of the policy, we control for a number of individual level of characteristics and also school level characteristics that would otherwise undermine our comparison. Um, so the fact that we don't see any impact on the value added of this uh, policy on these outcomes past the age of seven doesn't mean that actually these students are not learning. It means that uh, there is no additional impact of the policy on these, uh, on these uh, students' learning outcomes. So it's not like they're, they're suffering from this uh, <laughs> introduction of this. You didn't find anybody disadvantaged by the policy, and you found benefits for those who had the greatest challenges coming to school. Yes, indeed. These are our main findings. And I think the value of this is that we are the first to really be able to provide evidence of a policy that was introduced at the national level. There are some studies that have been carried out to evaluate specific phonics programs, but rely on small samples, 
for selected uh, sample sample of students. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very impressive that you have this for a, a, a whole intervention at scale nationwide. Very seldom do you get this kind of a situation where you can evaluate that. Now, is the program still in place in England, or have they gone back to the whole word method? <laughs> the program is still in place in England and is now um, effective in, in the entire country. Um, I also wanted to add that, that the policy is still in place also because not only because they impact the evidence or the impact on students' learning outcomes, but also because it's a cost, it's a cost effective. It's really a low cost intervention uh, that seems to have a, a significant impact in improving students' learning outcomes. So what were the costs? The costs were in the uh, hiring of the personnel to help the teachers learn this new method. Yes, okay. so the cost was basically related to having this consultant, this person who would provide training to teachers in the school. And basically the um, cost was only related to the first year of training of the uh, teachers in schools. So I should be very happy that my third grade teacher taught me phonics. <laughs> is that what you're telling me? Indeed. The evidence seems to suggest that, that this is uh, one of the most cost-effective methods to teach children how to read. Well, uh, Martina, thank you for discussing your very important uh, research on phonics uh, in England that has a lot of applicability uh, to the United States. Um, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It is my pleasure. Thank you, Paul. I have been speaking with Martina Veriengo, who is a professor in the Department of Economics at the Graduate Institute of the Center for International Development in Geneva, Switzerland. She just received a Eisenhower Fellowship and is in the United States to work with her colleagues on that project. Uh, this is Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Thank you, Martina, for joining me on the Education Exchange today. Thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure to be here. The Education Exchange is released every Monday at noon. Please join me each week for the latest issue of the Education Exchange podcast.